0: Or send an email to openline at EWTN.com.
1: A tremendous Thursday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Father Milady is in the house. If you'd like to ask Father a question, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, your number is 1- 205 271 2985. And we will uh, even put you straight to the front of the line at 1205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN dot. Calm. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson, handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Thursday, Father Brian Mullady, how are you? And thank you. Yeah. Uh, the, um... We, and we'll, we'll even turn your mic on for the whole answer next time. The, uh, <laughs> Yeah. Um, nice. As I was telling you when we were leading up to the show, uh we had litter mates, two little little girl puppies that we got fourteen years ago, named them Peach and Daisy, and, and uh and and Peach went on to her eternal reward, whatever that might be, and we're not gonna get into that debate on today's program. Um <laughs> But uh but her earthly life came to an end uh, uh today and you're gonna talk today. You of all people, uh, you of uh, well, anyway, uh, of a of a saint near and dear to you, <laughs> and a saint that's often pictured with a dog, with a dog and a torch. Don't forget the torch. The torch is very important. And well, I didn't. Also, I didn't have a torch that died today, so I left it. Was on. <laughs> a friend of Saint Fran-
2: was a friend of Saint Francis too. So uh, yes, I th- we celebrated the feast of Saint Dominic this week. And a lot of people know a lot about St. Francis, but they don't seem to know much about St. Dominic. And being a Dominican, I thought today I would talk about him because actually his life is rather timely for today's world. St. Dominic was born in Spain, in Calorega, in Castile, which they say is the land of rocks and saints, to a (laughs) semi-noble family. His father was a knight in the year 1170. And when he was in the womb, what uh, Jack was referring to is that his mother, who also is a blessed, by the way, as is his brother, they have quite an interesting family, um, had a dream. And in that dream, she saw a black and white dog carrying a torch, setting the world on fire. And so she asked her husband, woke him up, Felix, I had the strangest dream, and of course, it's supposed to be a prophecy of the black and white Dominicans, because that's what we wear, the sword of truth and the fire of charity and truth, setting the world on fire with divine love, because we are, though we're called the Dominicans, we're primarily, the real name is the order of preachers. St. Dominic was a cleric, he was raised to be a cleric, and he became an Augustinian canon in the place called Osma in Spain, and then he was sent with his Bishop Diego on a diplomatic mission to Scandinavia, which had to do with the king wanting to marry a princess. Well, while they were traveling through southern France, there was a heresy raging, the Albigensian heresy, where they taught there were actually two gods, a god of matter and a god of spirit, and the Albigensians uh, hated matter Basically, they thought the God of matter was evil. And their holy men, because they didn't like material things, practiced great austerities. And he stayed in an inn, the story goes, with a Albigensian innkeeper. And they debated all night the uh, Catholic faith in this regard, and he converted the innkeeper. When they were on their way back from the diplomatic mission, they were so struck by the fact that southern France was raging with this heresy. The Bishop Diego himself decided to to preach against the Albigensians, and the reason why the Catholic mission hadn't been terribly effective, one of them is because the people that were sent were monks, the Cistercians, who showed up with their silver plate and things like that and servants and the Albigenses had no respect for them. So around this time with St. Francis, the apostolic ideal in religious life was coming back into vogue where people didn't live in monasteries where they never went out, but instead like the apostles, they went out two by two to evangelize the world. And so that's what the friars, the early friars did. And they, uh also practiced begging because they didn't want people to say that they were preaching the gospel for the sake of some sort of material gain the great credibility to the preaching saint dominic is described by a nun who knew him as having an extremely cheerful disposition he was always a very uh, affable in the daytime with his brethren and at night, he spent vigil before the uh, our Lord and the church. And he is said to have spoken only to God or about God. Mm. Now, the Albigensian mission wasn't a success. So he had a group of people who joined him who were priests to preach two by two. And the pope liked this ideal. And he had converted a bunch of women so he put them in a monastery, and he wrote the first rule for them, the, pope, the Pope's uh, uh, desires. And these are the first Dominicans who were the cloistered nuns who never let us forget that they were first. <laughs> Eventually, Bishop Diego went back to Spain and died, but St. Dominic and the friars decided to continue on. And he didn't. There's an argument about whether he really meant to found an order or not but the Pope um, liked this very much. And so he adapted the rule he had written for the sisters to priests, and then they lived a common life, but they went out, and since he had to do something now with this group, he had a revelation after he prayed, and he sent them out two by two around Europe to university towns, because the preaching mission demanded education. And so they were to evangelize, especially the towns. The monks at the time took care of the fields, you know, the agrarian life. But the towns had very little in the way of active religious. So he died in the 1220s. And they say that he, in his deathbed, the brethren were all weeping around it. And he said, you know, don't weep for me I'll be much more used to heaven, to you in heaven, interceding for you than I ever was on earth. And his last will and testament is supposedly Behold, my children, the heritage I leave you, Uh, guard humility, and make your treasure out of voluntary poverty.
1: What about the rosary?
2: Well, the rosary was used as a, a tool of evangelization by the Dominicans. Of course, the pious story is that Mary gave it to him directly. But as we know, the rosary in its present form wasn't really developed until 300 years after he lived. And they only said the first part, of the Hail Mary, it was called the Saul Salter, Psalter, um, because the second part, Holy Mary, Mother of God, was added by Pius V at the Battle of Lepanto. And also the, uh, the story comes from Alan DeLeal when he founded the rosary confraternity, but that also was 200 years after St. Dominic died. Still, the rosary itself was a great preaching tool as they went around Europe in whatever form they found it, in order to encourage the laity, and we always call it the office, the divine office for the laity, and that's why the Dominican rosary begins a little differently than the regular one. It begins like the divine office does.
1: Lord, open my lips and my mouth will proclaim your praise.
2: Uh huh. And oh God, come to my assistance. Lord, make haste to help me.
1: St. Dominic, pray for us. Yes. 833 288 EWTN. That's our toll free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. Tom in Twinsburg, Ohio has taken advantage of that number, and we hope to talk to you in the future as well. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, your number is 1-205-271-2985. It's EWTN's called... How am I doing? EWTN's Open Line with Father Brian Mullady. Brand new for August uh, at EWTN, publishing The Mystery of Divine Love by Father Wojciech Geertik. Uh, Father Giertick is the theologian of the Pontifical Household, and he aspires nothing less than giving you intimate eye contact, quote unquote, with God. Uh, among other things, this book reveals how to cultivate the theological and moral virtues in your daily life. How to Demonstrate Authentic Love in Marriage, and How to Regard Sexuality as an Expression of Charity, Regardless of Your Vocation. All of this and much more, The Mystery of Divine Love, by Father Wojciech Giertik, available at EWTN's Religious Catalog, that's EWTNRC.com. Always, buy Catholic, shop EWTNRC.com. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We've still got a couple of open lines for you at 833-288-3986. Leading things off today is Tom in Twinsburg, Ohio, listening on The Rock out of Cleveland. Tom, you're on with Father Brian Mullady.
3: Yes. I know that the universe was created at a specific point in time by God Um, We estimate 138 million centuries, but first, could God have been able to create a universe at that time infinite in extent and mass matter? And if so, is it plausible that he might actually have done so?
2: Well, matter, for, for one thing, can't be infinite. The very definition of matter is that it's finite. Um. The whole idea of the universe has to do with it being able to be measured in some way, but of course, as we know, it's vast according to our measurements. Uh, The idea of a creation uh, in time is a a tenet of Christianity. We believe it, it's part of our doctrine, but we would only know this by faith. The fact that the creator holds all things in existence and would have to be perpetual but not infinite in the same way God is infinite, um, is something we can know by reason. Aristotle, I believe, knew it. But the fact that it occurred, as you say, in a time is something we only know by faith. Now, I don't think there is any calculation of it. It would have to be a scientific calculation. And again, I think the numbers are too vast and the whole expanse is too vast. And there are all kinds of mysterious things in the universe. However, I could be mistaken about this, but I believe that recently a lot of scientists have held for an expanding universe. And if that's true, it must have had an origin in time, which means it's finite. And so the, what would you say, the um, reasonable courses of all the things that exist in it that are pretty, pretty, Uh, coherent would demand then the ordering mind too, which is not a part of the universe. So um, uh, anyway, the answer to your question is you can't create infinite matter. But if if, if you mean in the same way God is infinite, if you mean something that just goes on and on and on and on where we can't measure the beginning or the end, or better say the uh, end, because we can obviously measure the beginning, um then uh, yes now that's the difference of course between this whole idea and god that god has no beginning and no end whereas the universe has a beginning what its end is well we only know that it occurs in god
1: thanks tom we appreciate the question today 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Pick up the phone. Give us a call here on Open Line Thursday. Albert writes in, If I am in a car accident with a loved one and she is about to die or vice versa, Am I allowed to hear her confession, give her absolution if she is contrite, and most importantly, give her an apostolic blessing?
2: Well, you wouldn't be because you're not a priest. You can certainly hear her confession, but then you would bring it to a priest, and you're bound by the seal when you do that, and then he can absolve from the sins. But you can't do that because you're not a priest. Uh, You can certainly hear what she has to say, and if she dies, of course, hopefully the absolution takes effect. But, uh, you know, there are people who, even translators, people who translated the confessional uh, from one language to another, they're bound by the seal too. And they're just mediums, you know, that because of the impossibility of one person understanding another, bring the confession to the priest. It would be a similar idea, I think.
1: Uh, Jim would like to know, does the Catholic Church—this is an interesting concept— does the Catholic Church dole out graces a bit at a time in the sacraments so that people must keep coming back rather than the Protestant Church where graces are freely given?
2: Oh, no, no. Grace is freely given, period. Um, In fact, the distinctions between graces are that— Uh, sanctifying grace is freely given beyond personal merit and makes a person holy. Actual grace is freely given beyond personal merit, um, but doesn't involve a habit or a change in the person's life. It only involves his support. Charismatic graces are freely given beyond personal merit, but they don't exist to make the person who possesses them holy. They exist to make others holy. The grace of the sacraments merely maintains the grace which is freely given and expands it and without personal merit. And the difference between Protestant grace and Catholic grace is that Catholic grace, especially sanctifying grace, involves a true change in the nature of your soul where you become a holy creature. Whereas, you know, according to Luther, you don't have a change in your nature, only in your psyche. In other words, you have confidence. God has overlooked your sins, but you remain, remember, depraved, a sinner. Uh, So the whole idea of being freed from original sin or the fact of original sin, and and there are no distinctions in Protestantism between mortal and venial sins. These are things that uh, really don't express what they believe. So... um, Uh, uh, Grace is freely given in both
1: cases. You know, Father. A lot of uh, people will—I have found this to be true in my own life on any number of occasions. But frequently, if not always, faith proceeds understanding. With regard to certain, yeah, with regard to tenets. a lot of people would say that that's just a cop out to justify your whatever it is you want to believe.
2: Well, faith—that's because they identify faith with emotional prejudice but faith remember is a habit of your mind in which you uh, assent to certain truths and how can you say you love someone when you don't know them so in order to love someone you have to know them so when luther says you know justification begins in faith or justification consists in faith says saint paul remember it was luther that luther that added the word alone in the scripture in the margin of the bible right uh, no, faith is necessary for love, but without love or works, faith is formed. It's uh, dead. But you have to. You can't love someone you don't know, and that's why knowledge has to precede love. And grace is a, the origin of both. Although we use grace primarily to refer to our union with God in our will which is charity and love itself.
1: Um, Erin writes in, and she wants to know how she can respond to people that tell her that Catholics worship Mary and they can earn their salvation by works.
2: Okay, well, we're back to the same problem I was just speaking of in the second half of the question. Um, We don't merit uh, grace. We merit glory. Uh, No one merits grace. Grace is freely given. But once we receive grace, and we receive grace primarily through works like the sacraments, and those are not our works, they're Christ's works. Once we receive grace, then we cooperate with the grace that we've received. And so we prepare ourselves for heaven. And the scriptures are very clear that there are different mansions in heaven. (laughs) Not everybody's in the same mansion and that some are greater and some are less. And um, this is all based not on your original reception of grace, but on how much you cooperate with it. With regards to Mary, and this somewhat relates to this issue, we don't worship Mary. We can't, she's not God. She's not a goddess. She's not the fourth person in the Trinity. Mary is the first of believers. She's not God. She's a believer. She's the first member, if you want to put it that way, of our church. And she's a role model to us about how to be a member of the church because she's the mother of Christ. And not only that, but I've said this many times in answer to this question, even on this uh, open line, that uh Protestants believe in the scriptures and they believe in the literal interpretation of the scriptures. And in the scriptures, in the Magnificat, Mary says, all generations shall call me blessed because he who is mighty has done great things for me. And we' all we're doing is fulfilling that scripture, all generations will call me blessed. So she has a special veneration but it's not the same as the worship of God. In fact, if you want to talk about the adoration, there are degrees of adoration, and they used to be expressed in textbooks in Greek words. So the primary adoration is that due to God alone. That's called Latria. Then there's a veneration or adoration we use for people who's been especially holy and shown divine-like characteristics because of their holiness. And in Greek, we call that dulia. Well, standing between the two is the one who is not God, not a goddess, and yet never sinned, uh, either actually or originally. She never experienced sin. And so the term we use for that is we venerate her with the veneration of like hyperactive, hyper dulia. So we don't worship Mary in any sense. Mary leads us to Christ, and uh, that's why she exists. Do whatever he tells you. She leads us to Christ.
1: 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Straight ahead, we're going to talk to Tom in the great state of Maryland, and we've got plenty of time for your phone calls and a couple of open phone lines at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.
1: 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. As advertised, we head to the great state of Maryland. Tom is a first-time caller listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Tom, thanks so much for holding. Welcome to the program.
3: Hi, thank you very much. Uh, I just wanted to ask... Uh, I'm trying to confirm whether I heard something Father said uh, correctly. So, Father, did you say that one non-priest can serve as an intermediary for another person for confession?
2: What I said was in danger of death when it's impossible for a person to confess to a priest. They may tell their sins to someone This often happens on battlefields and things. And that person is deputed to take the uh, confession to the priest so the priest can give absolution. That person is bound by the seal. A similar thing is true if it's necessary to use an interpreter for confession because they don't understand each other's language at all. It's possible for that to happen, but that person is also bound by the seal. Because remember, confession is made primarily to Christ. And no one, not even the priest who gives absolution has a right to share it with anybody. But uh, uh, given the situation of impossibility morally, uh, no one's bound to the impossible, a person could have the consolation of telling their sins to a third party who then is morally obliged to bring it to the priest and then forget it.
1: Does that help, Tom?
3: Yes, I've never heard that before. That's a very exciting to know. I appreciate
1: it. Thank Yeah, thanks, Tom. I right. appreciate it. I, I told Father <laughs> the exact same thing. Uh, 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288. Three nine eight six. It's all Tom's all the time today on open line. Our first two callers have been Tom's, and we've got another Tom in Norwalk, Connecticut, listening on Veritas Radio. Tom, you're on with Father Brian Milady.
3: Yeah, thank you very much for the program. I I, I think I have seen the father on um, on the, the TV version of EWTN, um, and I always appreciate uh, the, the exposition and. Um, you know, so concern is uh, confessional. Uh, I concern, my, my concern is that confessionals are can, can be uh, set up for problems that, that, that priests, and in general I have not found too many people who will keep confidences. You know, they won't keep secrets. Or, there's the old say, saying, three can keep a secret if two are dead. So, you know, I, that, that's a major concern. Also, I, I would think a priest would be— uh, behoove to um, if if anyone's done something illegal uh, or immoral to make amends for their transgressions, um, and also thinking um, is it ever appropriate to go over the head of the local um, the the local ministry to the bishop uh, to communicate with the local diocese if you see theological problems, uh, you know, and or things that you think are inappropriate, if you feel like the local priest won't really hear you.
2: You mean in confession? No, in,
3: in, 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 like I'll email the local
1: priest. All right,
2: well, you know, you're you're all over the place, so I'm trying to figure (laughs) out what we're (laughs) talking (laughs) about here, okay? kind of of two
1: questions there.
2: Yes, first of all, the penitent themselves chooses to impart their sins to a person. We don't send people out to do all this. It's Again, I'm, I'm emphasizing this is in an extremely extraordinary situation where the impossibility of confessing exists. All he does is carry the sins to the priest. Then he must forget it. He's bound by the seal too. If the penitent doesn't trust the person, he obviously wouldn't share his sins with him. Uh, It has to be someone of trust that knows what the uh, – understands the seal and things like that. Regarding the other, uh, well, yes, there is recourse to a higher authority. um, But, you know, you have to be aware that the higher authority may either A, not want to get involved, or B, decide to support the priest, or C, agree with the, the priest. And, of course, in a final analysis, as you know, a Catholic always has the right to appeal to the Pope. This was demonstrated, for example, in the trial of Joan of Arc, where, um, you know, at a certain point in time, she stood up and appealed her case to the Pope and uh, because, of course, she believed, rightly, that the English were using wicked clerics, in a sense, to accomplish political ends. And at that time, when she did that, the grand inquisitor of France, Jean de Paris, who was a Dominican, stood up and declared all future processes of that trial to be null and void. And that's the reason she could be canonized, because uh, they didn't have a right to continue. So in the final analysis, you can always uh, you know, appeal your case to the pope. I've known people, for example, when their diocese wants to close their parish or yogurt, they've appealed to the pope. Now, of course, they weren't successful because the congregation tends to support the local ordinary, which is understandable in a way. But they still have a right to appeal their case to the pope.
1: Still, one open line for you at 833 288 EWTN. That's 833 288 3986. Ronald is driving near Hannibal, Missouri, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Ronald, you're on with Father Brian Milady.
4: Yes, good afternoon, Father.
1: Good afternoon.
4: My question is one of the biblical. When the Bible scripture was. to those that wrote the word down. The word was divinely inspired from God, as I understand it. And my question is, how was it that God just spoke to these individuals, and we didn't have the means as we do today with the internet and whatnot, to get the word all over the world? How is it that we only only a few people would know about it?
2: I don't quite understand your question because the reason God spoke to those individuals was precisely so they might share it with the whole world. And remember, which came first, tradition came first. Uh, Tradition is divine revelation preached. Scripture is divine revelation written. So, and they're both equal sources of divine revelation for us. So, in tradition, the preaching of the apostles, Paul and Peter, came first. But their preaching was considered to be so precious that then the community, you know, wanted to have it written down and the Holy Spirit inspired the sacred authors to write down the truth about it. In some cases, it may have even been um result of dictation there is an old tradition that the gospel according to St. Mark its origin was that when Peter was a prisoner under house arrest in Rome before his execution it seems he was uh, under house arrest for quite some time and so the Christian community in, in Caesar's household he has converted some of them wanted him to comment on the seeming discrepancies and similarities between Matthew and Luke, because Matthew was written for the Jews and Luke for the Gentiles, based on his own personal experiences. Mark was his scribe, and Mark wrote it down as he dictated it. Presumably they had two scrolls, because remember they didn't have books, they had scrolls. And as they unrolled them, Peter made his comments And then after his death, this was published as a gospel. It's one of the reasons why there are no infancy narratives in in, uh, the gospel, according to St. Mark, because Peter wasn't present for those and didn't have a personal eyewitness. And yet there are many charming details in the gospel, according to St. Mark, that you will not find in the other two gospels. So the holy the spirit inspired each of the sacred authors to write down exactly what was the truth and that was precisely so it could be proclaimed throughout all the world
1: 833288 e w t n that's our toll free number, 833 288 3986. Next stop, the Republic of Texas. Grace is in Corpus Christi, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Grace, you're on with Father Brian.
4: Thank you. Father, can you hear me? I can hear you. Good. I was, I was uh, interested in the second Tom who said uh, the same thing I'm thinking. I've never in my life heard about someone confessing to another person in extreme circumstances uh, and having them pass on the confession. I don't understand. Did you answer at all that why would we need that? Wouldn't we just say, if I had a serious sin on my soul and I knew I was dying in the next five minutes, I would say, dear Lord, forgive me. You know I'm sorry, and I repent of that sin. I don't need anybody else, do I?
2: Well, the Catholic Church, you know, places things under the power of the keys. And most people receive absolution if there's a priest present before they die. And you're not, I I must emphasize this again, I will say it again, you're not confessing to another person. You're confessing to Christ. The other person is merely carrying your sins to the priest to receive the absolution of the church. Because you can't
1: do it. Thanks, Grace. Appreciate that phone call today. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll free number, 833-288-3986. Vicki is watching us on YouTube and she says, hello, with an exclamation point. God bless you all. If a person is divorced, but becomes Catholic, can they take the Eucharist?
2: well it depends on what you mean by divorced Um, if you mean from um, if you're not there's all kinds of distinctions that have to be made to answer your question All right, if you're a Catholic and you're divorced no you can't take the Eucharist if you were married in the church if you're a Protestant and you're divorced then um, we recognize that marriage too so your marriage would have to be fixed up in the church for you to take the eucharist so well let me see now if i i might have got a little confused here if you're a catholic and you're divorced from a civil marriage not a church marriage you know in the catholic church then of course you can take the eucharist because we don't recognize the marriage anyway if you're a catholic and if you're a pagan, <laughs> I mean, so I say, there are all kinds of distinctions about this. First of all, you obviously have to convert. And secondly, um, again, we might recognize that marriage, but should you decide to marry someone uh, in faith, there is a very extraordinary privilege where you can set aside a natural marriage, which should be indissoluble for the sake of a Christian marriage, but that requires the permission of the pope.
1: Thank- I think I hit everything. Yeah. Thanks, Vicky. We had yeah. the, lots of angles to that question for sure. 833- oh, yeah, uh, marriage questions. Yeah. Yeah. 833-288-EWTN. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Be sure to join us for the Chaplet of Divine Mercy every Monday through Friday morning at 5 a.m. Eastern Time. Get your day started right here on EWTN Radio. Ernest is in New Orleans, Louisiana, listening on the Almighty's 690 Catholic Community Radio. Ernest, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Yes, i
3: have
2: listening to uh, the, uh, the Queen of New Orleans. That's our station. Uh, <laughs> uh, listen, Father, what I wanted to ask you, a, a friend of mine, you know, we talked, and... and uh, I brought up the the question to him was, what do you think the reason for the
3: transfiguration was? And uh, can can you give give me the explanation for that, please, sir?
2: Oh, yes. The transfiguration is a very interesting episode in the life of Christ, and it's in all the evangelists. And the reason is because it's Jesus for the first time allowing the glory of his personhood as divine to show through his human nature. Now, there are several reasons for it. Of course, the first is to demonstrate that he is divine. So that's why the cloud covers and the Trinity and the Father says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Uh, so that the apostles could witness to this. The second, however, is to prepare the apostles and also to demonstrate uh, the scandal of, for the scandal of the cross. Uh, Jesus, as you know, is speaking with Moses and Eliah who represent the law and the prophets, but he's speaking by tradition about his passion. And since Christ knows how shaken the apostles will be by his passion, he is preparing them also by showing them that this is not, the passion won't be the end. See, this is, the, this is the final end here, the glory of God. And so he allows the very glory of God, almost the Shekinah, to shine through his human nature in order to demonstrate to us that he is the divine word made flesh. But that's to strengthen the apostles for the ordeal which they will have to undergo, and us, of course, too. It's one of the reasons we read this gospel during Lent, Because people who are doing penance, they have to see that uh, Christianity is a joyful religion. It's also a religion that doesn't end in penance. Penance is a necessary means, but it only ends in the glory of God.
1: Thanks, Ernest. We appreciate the call today. 833 288. EWTN is our toll free number. 833 288 3986. Next stop is Pryor, Oklahoma. Michael is in Oklahoma, listening on EWTN's app. Michael, you're on with Father Brian Melady. Father
3: Brian,
4: I'd just like to make a little clarification. When you said a divorced person should not receive communion, they should not receive communion if they're not living a celibate life. You can be divorced and receive the Eucharist as long as you're not remarried or living in a sexual relation.
2: He said it's a complicated question to answer in two sentences, okay? <laughs> yes, if you're not having sex, obviously you can go to communion. <laughs> yeah. But if you're divorced... Um,
1: it's still a sin, you know. Yeah, that would need to be taken to the sacrament first.
2: That right. You'd have to confess. But then you can, yes, uh, you, you're living a celibate life and you're not having sex. Of course, there's no state of sin that exists.
1: Yes. Thank um, you, Michael, for that clarification. We appreciate yes, it.
2: Yes, thank you. Yes. And I'm sure there'll be several more. So.
1: <laughs> 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833 288 3986 Lance would like to know what is the purpose of having two judgments.
2: Oh, that's very beautiful and quite easy to answer. The first judgment is the particular judgment of the soul in which the soul as an individual becomes worthy of heaven or of hell. But because of the original sin and because of death and we've gone through death The second judgment has to do with the final reconstitution of all things in Christ and God. And of course it only occurs when the number of the elect, whatever it may be, you know, it's described as 144,000 in the apocalypse, but that's just the perfect number, 12 by 12, all right? And uh, when the number of the elect is filled then all the motions of the heavens and the earth cease because that was the thing that brought them into being to begin with as moving things in order to serve the uh, universe and the universe to serve man and man to serve God. So when the number of the elect is filled, then the whole reason for the existence of the universe ends and then the particular judgment that was made in secret becomes pronounced before all the assembled creation by Christ himself. And that's when the sheep will be separated from the goats and you know what you did in secret will be made known. So and for the wicked, this will redound to the furthering of their punishment because ever, all their secret thoughts will be known by everyone. And for the good, this will add to their um, uh, glory in God because they persevered, and for those who have converted, who loved a wicked life but converted, this shows the power of grace in their own conversion.
1: 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Next up is Francis in Prairie Grove, Illinois, listening on WSFI Radio. Francis, you're on with Father Milady.
4: Oh, thank you. I didn't know it would be so quick. Um, Father, uh, thank you for, for attempting to answer these questions. I mean, you did, you're did. you doing a wonderful job, but my question doesn't have anything to do with my faith, I guess you could say. When I heard that you were Dominican, and of course, uh, by the way, a belated happy uh, uh, St. Dominic Day for you. I went to Mass on, on Monday and prayed for St. Dominic. I have a lot of Dominics and Dominiques in my family. But here is my question. Um, I graduated from Dominican University in River Forest, Illinois. It, well, I, when I graduated from it, it was Rosary College all, for all girls. Then they changed it and added boys, and it became Dominican University. But my question is this. The nuns that uh, uh, founded Rosary College Dominican University are Cincinnati Dominicans, and they were founded by Father Samuel Kelly. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of him.
2: And oh, we is pray up- for his beatification every day of my novitiate. Yes,
4: Two, I pray for him every day. In fact, right now I'm holding a holy card that one of my friends touched to his tomb, and I have that with me. But I was just wondering how far along it's come, or is there a way of measuring that?
2: Uh, how far along is... Has his is, cause come? Oh, his cause? I, I really don't know. I have a suspicion it's not going many, very far. Because basically the Cincinnati sisters are behind it. And as you know, they're dying. They're selling most of the mother house. It's up for sale. So um, they have a few little vocations. But I I don't know. But I have a suspicion that um, it's not going too well. Because the people who are pushing it themselves are in difficulty.
1: Sorry to give you that news, Francis. We hope you have a tremendous rest of your day. Next up is Paul in the great state of Georgia, listening on St. Paul Radio. Paul, you're on with Father Brian.
3: Oh, thank you for taking my call. Uh, Two two questions, Father. Uh, One is about perfect and imperfect contrition, and our role in intercession for those who die. uh, And we're talking about people who confess their sins before they die and don't have a priest. And the second question is, I always have a hard time with the act of contrition and confession. Or any time I say it, when we do the part of, I firmly resolve with the help of thy grace to sin no more and to avoid the near occasion. I mean, avoid the near occasion, we can figure that out. But I mean, you know that, the thought that a just man falls seven times in a day and I kind of feel like a hypocrite when I say that.
2: All right, well, let's answer the second part first. The whole reason Christ instituted confession was because he knew we were weak. And it's to strengthen us in our weakness. As you know, it's medicine for the soul. So it wouldn't be hypocritical to take medicine for a chronic disease, which you firmly resolve you want to be cured from. And in a similar way, it isn't uh, hypocritical for you to ask constantly for divine strength in dealing with your moral weaknesses, right Now, I didn't quite understand the first part of the questions. Um, perfect contrition is when you are afraid of your uh, of, uh, you have a respect for God and you confess your sins from pure love. Imperfect contrition is when you do the same, but it's motivated also by your fear of hell. In danger of death, uh, perfect contrition solves the issue. Now, all right, fine. Maybe you don't want to confess. Maybe you figure. But I don't know how many of us really can rely on perfect contrition uh, without some degree of self-interest involved. And um, that's why the confessing of the sins to a priest is still recommended. Uh, you know, important. Uh, most priests, when they if you're still conscious. Uh, when they come to give you the anointing, which also forgives sins, uh, and communion, Holy Communion, they also ask you if you wish to confess. Imperfect contrition, of course, can only resolve from sin in relationship to confession, and perhaps this is also related to what I was trying to explain about the fact that the person carry is merely a communicator. It sounds like a a line, it's not, a, you know, your sins to a priest to receive absolution. On, of course, the condition that you're still alive.
1: And very quickly, Father Lydia in Mesa, Arizona, she says she's 65 and unmarried and wants to know if she should hope for marriage at this age. Sure, why not? <laughs> God bless you, Lydia. Uh, Father, would you leave us with a blessing?
2: May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever.
1: Amen. 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 On behalf of our host, Father Brian Mullady, our producer Michael McCall, call screener Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to Open Line Thursday. Back at it tomorrow with Open Line Friday and our very own Vice President of Theology, Colin Donovan. Until then, God bless.